Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey everybody, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is Patrick Leopold. Before we get to Patrick, I have some announcements. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there, see some stories that I've written, some stories that guests have written, see links to their social media, see photos of them, see links to our social media. And that is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. You can go to our Facebook page. There are links to Apple Podcasts. There are links to Stitcher Radio. And if you go to any of those platforms, I'm begging you, give us a good rating, huh? That helps more people find the show because it boosts our presence. That's a cool thing to do. So if you could do that, I'd appreciate it. Hey, do you know somebody who might be a good guest for the show? Do you think you yourself might be a good guest for the show? Or maybe you want to write me and tell me some wonderful things about the show or me or the world in general. My point is you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That is TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. So our guest today, Patrick Leopold, is French. He was visiting L.A. back in October. He's uh, staying at my friend Diana's house, who lives nearby. And we were all at a party the night before. He was about to leave, and I said, well, this is an interesting guy. I think you'd make a great guest for the podcast. He was flying back that day, the next day, I, like I said, so I corralled him into coming over, having some coffee in the morning, and recording a podcast. He's done a lot of interesting stuff over the years. He's gone windsurfing in Antarctica, then drove the entire Pan-American Highway all the way from the southern tip of Argentina to Alaska. He's been a safari guide in Tanzania, and also leads tours around America. So as you can see, pretty interesting guy. It was a pleasure to meet him, and hopefully we can hang out again another time. So enjoy my conversation recorded live in my living room with Patrick Leopold. So how long? You're only in town for how long? Now, well, I'm living. leaving this afternoon. I'm taking a flight back. To Europe. I've been here like about two months now. Okay, so tell me again the name of your business and what you do for a living. Because I found it very interesting. You lead tours of... Oh, okay, yeah. I have like different yeah. um, different thing I do. You know, like I organize safaris in Tanzania because I lived there for like four or five years. And then when I got back to Europe, everybody was asking me to organize their own safari. So um, (laughs) then I have this. Then I'm um, a tour guide in in the States and in the South Pole. So sometimes I go down in Antarctica. Even if I'm seasick, but uh, <laughs> but it's fun to go and see the wild at the bottom of the earth. Yeah, I went to Antarctica, but you know, when I like in a cruise ship goes to Antarctica, we only go to that one little arm sticking up, you know, exactly. out of that. Yeah. Do you go all the way down to the South Pole? No, it would take forever. Right, know? it's very so. expensive. I know a guy who did, but it's very expensive. 
and difficult because sometimes you know it's all weather. Yeah, so. well, you have like two days and two nights from Ushuaia, which is the tip tip of South America, yeah. and you have to cross uh, the Drake, um, the Drake Passage, passage, and you arrive at the tip of Antarctica, and then you start to see, you know the icebergs and the penguins and all the life that's down there, you know, the orcas. Well, let's go back to uh, Tanzania. Why there? You grew up in France. People could tell right now. For, we didn't bring that up, but they can tell you're not from Alabama. Oh, you can, you can <laughs> see my, my accent. Uh, I can't hide it anymore. Can't hide it. When did you first go to Africa and why did you choose to go to Tanzania and give tours? Well, it's a funny story because um, I used to give school supplies in South America. So I went with my car from one tip of Argentina all the way to the tip of Alaska. And uh, because I did this, I'm part of an association in France, which is called uh, the Explorer Society. And the Explorer Society belongs to the National Geographic in France. And so you're kind of in this gathering, and uh, this girl talked to me and said, hey, I mean, they're looking for a position in Tanzania. I said, I don't know anything about safari, but uh, that <laughs> looks fun. And then it started like that. I had this job, an amazing job. I was quite surprised that they paid me for, you know, just being in the bush and making sure everything was fine. <laughs> but it's a great adventure. So they paid you to take groups out on safari. How big were the groups? How many people? Well, we were like two expats taking care of the company down there. So, you know, the, the, the tourists would come. I would make sure that they go in the right camps, that everything was fine in the camps. And nobody got killed by the animals, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and I would uh, do also the Kilimanjaro treks. And then people end up with uh, Zanzibar, you know, just laid back on the beach. It's exactly what I did. Well, give me your scariest encounter with an animal in Tanzania. Well, the thing is, you shouldn't get out of the car. You know, that's <laughs> right. very important. So. Exactly. <clears throat> no, it's just uh, you're there with the car. You just stop the engine. And what's fun about it is just you listen to the silence of the savanna out there. And there's no visual pollution. There's no buildings, no power lines, just the animals. And you just sit there and see the wildlife coming next to you, the elephants looking at you, uh, the lions coming right next to the car. And they come right next to the car because there's some shade. So all this experience makes it really valuable and being in the Maasai country also. Did you ever have uh, tourists uh, try to get out of the car and you have to go rescue them? <laughs> no, not really, but uh, one day we were just like, uh, you know, walking in the savanna, and there was like my friend, a Maasai in front, and you know like in parks you cannot have like arms, so they only have like a spear, and all of a sudden I see this kind of uh, gray-looking pipe in the middle of the savanna, so, and this thing is moving, <laughs> and we're just crossing with my people down behind me, and this thing is going to cross our way. And it was like a black mamba. Oh. And you know that black mamba. The most deadly snake Exactly, ever. because they're territorial, you know. All the other snakes make some, some noise and they go away, not this one. <laughs> so that was quite scary. So the thing just look at us and everybody's just freeze. And luckily I'm here, but it just passed his way. But one day I had like these snakes just following the car because I went next to his nest somewhere. Part of my tour was to go to the Maasai village. And 
what is the relationship between tour companies and the Maasai people? Do they get paid? Or do, uh, is it a good relationship, or is it... Of course, of course, because the Maasai people are like warriors, you know. They call it uh, um, Moran, Moran over there. So there are villages, and we have like this luxury camp for tourists all around the world. So I want to make sure those people have a job and feed their family. And when the tourists come, they get to visit those, those villages. So they're part of our team and, and work out there, of course. Okay. Is there a, a worry that maybe their culture is being exploited or taken away by all these people coming in to their village? No, not at all, because they know those tourists comes and goes. And what I want to make sure, and with, when you have like tourists coming in Tanzania, that they, they want themselves to give a little something. You know, so like a few times I had like to build some classrooms for the Maasai people or give them computers. Uh, so it's an exchange. You come on safari, but just don't spend your money and go away. You spend it wisely also. Did you ever do the Kilimanjaro climb? Did you go to the peak? Yeah, well, I had to, you know, even <laughs> if I don't like to, to walk that much. But what? I organize it, so I got to make sure everything's fine going to the top. Which trail did you... Which the Rongai Trail. Okay. The Rongai Trail. So that's about six days? About five, yeah. Four days going up and one day coming down. Yeah, intense, sure. right? Yeah, intense. Yeah. And I did what they called the Coca-Cola route. Yeah, exactly. with the With the cabins. That's the one I did, which is the shortest one, I think. Which is not good, because 11 of us made it to the top. The 12th guy got a little sick on the way up on the final night. So he made it to the first ridge, Yeah, and then they went back down. So he had a little certificate, but he never got to the, the final peak. Do you ever recommend it to people, or do you think that it's getting crowded, right? The, the, I recommend it, of course, because um, I have like guides over there that have been doing it like for twenty years, and they're telling me that uh, you know the the um, the snow is going to disappear one day. Yeah. You know? So you have like those ice on the top. It's a glacier up there. It's a glacier, and uh, so you really need to see the last snow on the top of Africa, really, and experience it. And understand why the weather's climate change. And this is a good example of what's happening over there. When you see like pictures like 20 years before and now, you can tell the difference. Now, you, go, you work in the mountains as well in France, right? The ski area? Yeah, yeah, exactly, in the ski resorts. So there also you have you like see the, the same thing, yeah? Exactly. I heard that, that the ski resorts, especially in Europe, are getting much less snow now. It depends, like, but there's like one good year, and then like for four years, there's nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. And we know that from 20 years from now, it's going to be difficult for ski resorts. So they got to reinvent themselves. What was your background growing up? Like your family, did they travel all the time? Did, they, did your family go to Africa and other places growing up when you were a kid? Yeah, my father used to work for a big company, and then we would travel in different countries and stay like two or three years. So that gives you the incentive to go somewhere, you know, to get out of your comfort zone and discover after that what's the other side of the frontier in other countries. But didn't you also live in, in Connecticut, you said? I lived in Connecticut, yeah. As a boy? As a little boy, yeah. Going. So you went to school there? Yeah. The what part of Connecticut? Uh, Greenwich, old Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. You know, like an hour away from New York City. My mother was from outside of Hartford in Simsbury. Oh, nice. Yeah. Little town, little town out there. Did you like it? What was America like to a kid? Course. How old were you? I was like seven or eight, you know? And it was like you had seen it on TV and the movies. Did it 
was it like how you imagined it to be when you came to America? Or were you like, this place Even is better. weird? Even better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a little kid, you go to school in the morning and then you go and play sports in the afternoon. The French system is not like that at all. You go to school all day long and you have maybe two hours of sport during the week. So can you imagine I'm a French little boy going in school in the U.S. and I loved it. But then it became difficult when I had to come back to France and I was like so miserable. <laughs> So much about I'm not going to work all day, all week, you know. <laughs> right. So I really loved the, the the American system as a little kid. How long were you here? Like three years. Oh, just three years. Okay. Yeah. And then you you come back all the time. And tell me about the tours that you're doing here in America. Well, I do some tours, so I help people just to, because I love this country. I love the West Coast, you know, and there's so amazing scenery also in the United States, you don't need to go all the way the other kind of, um, part of the world to see amazing things. Just go yeah. to Grand Canyon, just go and see those magnificent deserts. And I love the history of the United States, and I love the geography. And, uh, uh, and so I try to explain to people how it works here, you know, uh, and that they're lucky enough to be there. Uh, and for like miles and miles, you can see the scenery. Because in Europe, everything's very small, you know, and there's houses and villages and towns everywhere. <laughs> Here for hours, you just see the desert, and uh, it's very emotional, and I love that. Uh, so you had just come back from Montana, right? Yeah, I saw some friends in Montana, okay. exactly. Talk about no people. It's like nobody up there. But it's the wild. It reminds yeah, yeah. me a little bit also of Africa, you know, like I was telling you. You just sit there and listen to the silence. Now, silence is a luxury now, you know, in our world. So I try to find this. Even I love to see the culture, different culture in different countries. But just get a glimpse of the silence around you. And everything's amazing. I mean, uh, just sit down on Grand Canyon. Nobody's around. Try to forget all the people visiting. Just sit there and look far away. And it's emotional. So give me your favorite, your top three places to visit in the u.s grand canyon right is that one of them yeah grand canyon glacier national park because there's the wildlife and you know how mm -hmm. you know the wildlife is important and the big city maybe new york or san francisco you know so that's what i mean the, the country's so large that uh, there's wild places like alaska but i love the pace also when you go to to new york or even to la i mean it's moving it's fast <laughs> So what's fun is like the paradox between those two worlds in the States. Where haven't you been in the U.S. that you want to go to? Uh, I want to take more time in Alaska, actually. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was there all summer, but on a ship. So it was only in the, you know, south uh, west part of it. You know, Juneau and Ketchikan, Skagway and up around there. But yeah, you have to go inland and it's, it's huge. It's, it's enormous. It's the size of the third of the 48 states. It's enormous. Exactly. And when I drove from Argentina to the... I wanted to do this road, the Pan American Road, you know. Oh, yeah. So from one tip of Argentina to the tip of Alaska, you arrive in Fairbanks. And then after, you have to drive all the way on this gravel road <laughs> to Prudhoe Bay. And uh, so um, that was a great experience. You did it? You did the Pan American Highway? Yeah, for one year. One year? One year. In a car, a motorcycle? In a big car, you know, we could sleep inside and just go from one tip to the other. And I just didn't want to travel with not a, a purpose. So I wanted to meet the tribes and the Indian tribes in South America. 
So I had this idea of collecting school supplies in France and giving them to the kids, Indian kids in South America. Just, um, you know, when you give something, uh, you get so much more giving back to you. And I had to meet all those great people. And I was just giving, you know, school supplies, pencil and notebooks. But they did parties for us, you know, singing and dancing for us. But I just wanted to meet them. So all along the way in Chile and Patagonia and Argentina and uh, you go to Bolivia and then you cross the Amazon. You go in the Amazon there all the way to Venezuela. At that time, it was not dangerous. Yeah. And then there's no roads between Panama and Colombia. So you got to put your car in a boat, go to Panama and cross all those countries in Central America and go all the way to Alaska. Oh, my gosh. Did you have uh, a sponsor? Did the, like, the country, like in France or business sponsors for your trip yeah toyota helped me a lot you know because the car is great and uh so each time i would arrive like in la paz in bolivia um i would tell my story and then the local media was would talk about it you know uh and you would put the the focus and the light on those tribes down there uh, what's happening in the Amazon, what's happening uh, in uh, in the, with the Mapuche people down in Patagonia. So that's what I wanted to put the light on. What year did you do this? That was a long time ago. You know, like in, <laughs> it was in the late 90s. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what were some, give me a few of your favorite places in South America. Well, it's really funny, you know, because uh, one of my favorite places is uh, Chara del Fuego which is the tip, you know? Yeah. Uh, the land of fire, which was called like this by Magellan, you know, this navigator of the 16th century. Um, oh, funny story about that. You know, I was with my car in like a windsurf on the roof. <laughs> so I stop at the Strait of Magellan. And uh, there I say to my girlfriend, just put the car on the boat and I'll join you the other side with the windsurfer. Then I got stopped by the military there. I said, yeah, you can't do that here. (laughs) Okay, so I asked permission. I got the permission, and I became the first man in the world to cross the Strait of Magellan with a windsurfer. (laughs) And there was like a journalist on board, so they put me on the Guinness Book. Hey, that's great. How long did it take? Just a few hours. Oh, it must have been freezing. It was okay. It was okay. (laughs) And I was really lucky because the wind was not that strong that day. (laughs) Oh, Because you know how strong winds you have over there. Oh, yeah. And one thing leads to the other. And the next thing you know, I was in Ushuaia Bay, you know, so it's like a port. And uh, I was just doing my windsurfing there. And this guy sees me and says, oh, you're doing windsurfing here? Well, listen, I'm going to the South Pole and the polar bases. If you come with me, you'll be the first man in the world ever to windsurf the Antarctic Ocean. The next thing you know, I found sponsors did a movie, and went down back there. Where? Wow. What, can people see? Is the movie online or somewhere? We can see it? That was a documentary made like a long time ago. So, uh, What's the name of it? Oh, it was just a windsurfing, world premiere windsurfing in the Antarctic. Okay, we'll Google it. I'm sure yeah. we could find it somewhere. But see how life is interesting, because I started with a tie, you know, <laughs> in a suitcase, working in Paris, and then I quit my job, and I'm starting all this adventure. And then I did uh, the windsurfing in Antarctica. And then later on, a friend says, oh, you won't be into Antarctica. We're looking for people to give lectures down there. So I said, I don't know that much. I just put the foot in Antarctica with my windsurfing, but that's it. So I studied. I loved it. 
you know, and now I lead people going down there, uh, as you did, also uh, seeing this, this uh, you see the climate change and see all the mammals, marine mammals down there. Antarctica was one of those places where I describe it to people that uh, there's no cities, nothing. So when you talk about the silence, I remember going out on the deck and there's, you hear nothing. It's a sanctuary, yeah. you know. And there's like a treaty signed in 1959 about it. So you can do research, but that's it. It belongs to humanity. And we hope that it stays that way. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So what, how many times a year do you go to Antarctica? You know, the season to go to Antarctica is really short. So yeah. you got to go there. Uh, I mean, the, the... Like December through March or something? Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So I want to get back to this Pan American highway thing. Did you ever have any other run-ins with... Uh, police or you have to pay like a bribe or something <laughs> for they bother you that they look at this frenchman coming in here we're gonna I charge have a funny money story about that <laughs> i mean when you go through central america you have all those countries you know, nicaragua salvador honduras so you go from one border to the others and uh they're like uh, okay you need to pay this and this and this and you're like i'm sorry but uh you know you don't need and you don't have to pay <laughs> so sometimes you wait for hours But you say, listen, I have like a credit card. You want, so you just wait because I don't have that much money. So, you know, and I tried to give school supplies to the tribes over there and, and the poor people. And one day I'm on the Salvador border and I has this letter from Mr. Calderon Sol, who was at that time the mayor of San Salvador, you know, the main city. I come there six months later. I show this letter to the border officer. He looks at me and says, hey, you have like an appointment with this Mr. Calderon Sol? I say, yeah, yeah, he's the mayor of uh, the city. He said, no, he's the president. <laughs> so the next thing you know, I had like an escort going. I met his wife and we did all the, you know, the, the distribution of school supplies in some schools. Oh, that's great. So then you came up through uh, Mexico. Exactly. And then into the U.S. So is that Highway 1 that goes along the coast? Is that all the same highway? Or did you take the interstates when you got to America? Well, I wanted to visit, so I did like zigzags, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you go through Vancouver and then Whitehorse, and uh, you go to Tuck, Fairbanks, and all the way up there. And when it's over, I mean, me and my girlfriend, we were like, oh, this is the end of the trip. So we went back to New York, uh, put the car back on a ship, and came back to Europe. And for this one-year trip... I didn't have any problems, really. I get back to Paris, I stop for something, and someone steals my radio in the car. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And I had no problems whatsoever in the Amazon, in the jungle, or whatsoever. And all your family, everybody tells you, oh man, why are you going to Nicaragua? Why are you going to the Amazon? It's so dangerous. And, uh, and then you get to Paris, and <laughs> exactly. yeah, people get to Paris, and you steal your radio. That's crazy. So how was this? Your girlfriend did the whole thing with you? Of course. Yeah, yeah. How, was, how was that for your relationship? Stressful? Not Any, at all. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> That's a good relationship then. Exactly. No, no. <laughs> it's very important to share those good things with someone. I mean, you can be at the other end of the world in Tahiti on a nice beach. If you're alone, mm -hmm. 
it's not the same flavor, you know. When when you can share it with someone, when you can share your adventure with someone, it's so much better. Did you record this or, or shoot a film of it? We did little movies and things like that, you know. Uh, of course, yes. Right. So now, when you you go back to France, uh, you said I think last night you said you didn't want to live in France, or. Do you There's still? good things in every in, in <laughs> every country. Huh? There's great things in America, and there's and bad great things. things and bad things, and also in France. There's no perfect place. If I've learned anything traveling, there's no there's no perfect place. Exactly, and and you go in every country in the world, and everybody has to raise a family and 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 make a living. So what's interesting is just to see the difference. You know, when you live in Africa, you see how those people live, and then when you come back home in France you're like huh why are we making such a deal of our little problems you know when there's so many ter terrible things that can happen to you so um, you got um, um, think differently about life let's go back to Tanzania then so when you uh, left there you were there five years what made you stop and do something else we were just I'm done. Yeah, because you're like <laughs> five a, years is enough. You're like a bushman, you know. And uh, zebras are nice, really nice, but they have no conversation. So after a while, you have to come back, you know. And um, but I, lo it was very, very, very intense all the time because the people are so nice, and they rely on you. Uh, so it's like, oh, you're not going to leave us, right? Uh, um, But there's always something, you know, you fire someone and you got to be careful because if you fire one guy, you know, he's like uh, nourishing the whole family and like 20 people and the uncle and the cousins and so and so. So it's very social and uh, you got to be careful what you're doing over there. People uh, rely on you a lot. And uh, when I left, you know, everybody was crying and I had all those great gifts from the Maasai, like a spear, like all those jewelry things. And... Uh, Um, I, I love Africa. I mean, I don't know anybody who hates Africa. It's impossible to hate Africa because it goes from one end to the other, you know, very fast. It's also, the continent is so much bigger than people realize. I don't, I don't think people realize how big Africa is. It's huge and so different from one end to the other, from one side to the other, from the east to the west, North Africa, south. It's, it's completely different. And it's an adventure each time you go in one of those countries. You know, it's, it's still things to see that you don't know and to go. It's not easy to go from one place to the other, you know. Uh, one of my next trip, I'm, I would like to go all around um, the south part of Africa, you know. So you go from Tanzania to Mozambique to South Africa to Namibia and go all around there, you know, with a car and just see the wildlife again in those different countries. There's so much more to see. Is there one country that you see there that's really doing a good job protecting the animals and the wildlife? Well, I saw in Tanzania. I, I mean, um, people bring their money to see the animals and the money is wisely um, uh, used to protect the wildlife. I mean, you know, in Serengeti, which is a huge park in Tanzania, you have like this wildlife uh, going back and forth, uh, and you have to protect that. They have like their own terrain for the moment, 
there's no cities being built around. So the government is really, their priority is to make sure it's protected. But there was also a rumor when I was there that, that the Chinese wanted to put a railroad right through the Serengeti. Yeah. And I mean, you worry about that. The Chinese this, are really investing hard this, in Africa. This is politics, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to be careful. You bribe enough people, it can get done. And that's the danger. But, you know. That's the history of Africa also and the different of course. governments. It's heartbreaking. And, exactly. So you have like a minority have all the money and you have the whole population who's like, uh, doesn't have enough food to eat. Yeah. So it's, it's um, we're protected in our countries. And we have to see how those people live over there and try to do something, you know. So if people want to book a safari or are thinking about going on safari in Tanzania or wherever, what is a good advice you can give them? What, to, what should they look for when they find a company, like a tour company? You know, going on safari is different than going on a nice beach. You just lay there on the beach in a nice uh, island and that's it. Over there you have like another dimension which is the wildlife, the animals, and the people, and the culture. So it's a mix of the scenery, the wildlife, and the culture. If you want to see that, you have to go to Africa, because it's so far away from our civilization. And, and like I said before, just switch off the engine and just listen and just look at, uh, imagine how the world was like thousands of years before. It's untouched. But you can't always guarantee that the animals will be there. Yes, you can. Oh, you can? Oh, in Tanzania, you can. Oh, <laughs> Otherwise, I reimburse your trip. Oh, you do? Okay, oh, yeah. I mean, you will see all the big fives. Yeah. Know? <laughs> That's good to know. We saw um, rhinos in Ngorongoro Crater, which was rare, rare now, I, I guess. They're protected, of course, yeah. you know, against po- poachers. And, uh, but around Ngorongoro, which is a, a volcano... You go inside the caldera, and you have like 20 rhinos there protected with miradors around it. So you have rangers just making sure um, that nobody's touching them. Did you ever see yourself maybe staying in one place and settling down, or were you always, do you think your life will always be traveling? Well, it's a period of your life, you know. Uh, sometimes you want to just travel, and sometimes you just want to lay back and sit down. For the moment, I just want, I, I, there's so much to see. <laughs> so many uh, cultures to meet, and uh, I love that. If you, ask, if you ask someone, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? 90% of the people would say, I would travel, you know. I don't make that much money, you know. You don't need to be rich to travel. Uh, try to find a purpose in a way to meet other culture and go down there. Like, I was in Colombia for two months, and my friend said, what are you doing in Colombia? It's dangerous. You know, you have this image and everything. I loved it. I loved it. There's not too many tourists for the moment. Uh, for the moment. I heard for it's, the moment. it's growing. It's opening. Yeah, yeah. It's very popular now from here. I, I almost went there. I almost booked a trip there for two weeks from now, but instead I'm going elsewhere. But I've heard great things. Were you in Medellin or Medellin, as they say? Medellin, yeah. I, I went. I heard from it's beautiful. Bogota to Cali to Medellin to Santa Marta to uh, Cartagena also, and it's full of history. You know, the, the, the first Spaniards who arrived there, and so you list, you learn about uh, the history of this country, about the people who went through an ordeal. For like years, 
uh, and now they try to change, they want to change the, the way we see Colombia. So they're super nice with you. You know, he said, oh, no, it's not drugs anymore. I mean, just yeah. just forget Pablo Escobar. You know, they don't <laughs> want to hear about him anymore. Um, and it's untouched. And, and, and the fruits that you can buy in the, in the, in the street and uh, no, everything, I love it. I want to go back there. What part of the world have you never seen that you really, really want to? Like if you have a wish list of places I want to go, go now on the east side, you know, like on the Silk Road. You know, this link between um, uh, Europe and Asia. And yeah. Asia. Um, I've never done mainland me, China. I've me neither. Been. Me neither. So I want to go out there and, and, and see how it is and uh, how those people see us also. I want to understand that. And on the way, I want to see all those travelers, you know, some travel with a bicycle, some with a motorcycle, some just go for three years in a truck and, uh, <laughs> or families in a camper. I met those French families just on the road, on the Silk Road, you know, with their two kids. Mm-hmm. So that's an amazing experience that I think everybody should do at one point. Are you a big, uh, uh, like a food person? Do you make sure to try the local foods everywhere you go? I try. I'm, the, I'm a big eater. I like eating. What yeah. is the craziest thing you ever ate? In say like in Africa or oh, somewhere well, in Tanzania, you know what yeah. Maasai eat? No, what oh, do they eat? Man, <laughs> what is, do they eat? This is very hard. They, they, you know, they take like a vein of the cow, and there's like the the blood going out. They mix it with kind of um, uh, milk from the cow. They do like kind of a porridge, so it's very healthy. But that's the way they eat. Hmm. So when you're a white guy and you said, oh, let's try this, you know, it's like, oh, man. And you try it and it's, it's difficult, but it's, uh, you have to try it. Have you ever gotten any like, food poisoning? or? Not really. When you're in Africa, you've got to be really careful. You know, the meat the water. is yeah, the water, too. of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, the vegetables, you've got to wash them with special things. Uh, the meat is super cooked. Uh, otherwise, you have like those little flies and yeah. they put some eggs in the meat. They do the same thing when you wash your clothes, you know, it's humid, and you have those things that put their eggs on the, on the, on the T-shirt. So you have to iron everything. Uh, wow. Um, I didn't think about it. You go in the wild, let's say. One day I went down with my Jeep, and I arrived in the savannah next to the Baobab, and I needed to put, like, a new camp for the tourists. So here I am, just looking. I was with this ranger guy and said, hmm, this is a nice place to be. We can see the wild from there. All of a sudden, you have all those tsetse flies hitting the glass of the car, trying to get in. He said, okay, let's go away now. (laughs) You know, that's why we don't have any dark clothes when we go in the savannah, you know, because those insects are attracted by the black or the blue. Oh, I didn't know that. So but he, also, aren't they attracted to, like, somebody told me I shouldn't shower as much because they're attracted to the perfumes and the soaps and, like, shampoo yeah. and things like that. Exactly. So, so there's some... Smell bad and dress lightly. If exactly. I've, I've learned something today. Smell like shit <laughs> and dress lightly. <laughs> Wear light colors. Man, that's, yeah, it's, you don't think about that, the laying eggs in your shirt or something. Ooh. That's I know, crazy. so, and, and everybody has, like, uh, malaria over there, so you've got to be really careful, yeah. you know, but you have, like, you, you just got to be common sense, you know, 
don't go at night without socks, let's say. Um, don't. Uh, I was in Venezuela at one point and with my car, and you need to find a place where to park and sleep. You just be careful. So the trick I found is you go in the embassy um, zone, you know, where there's a lot of embassies, and there's always a guy there just... Um, just um, Like a police? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you ask him nicely, can I park my car for the night in front? And you know you're safe. Right. So there's little tricks like that. You always like carry two, two wallets. You know, the wallet with all your important papers. You just hide it somewhere in the car. And then you have a wallet with the local money. Yeah. So, so you if got you stock, get pocket, you, you yeah. give them something. Always. Always. What was the biggest bribe you've ever had to hand over? Just borders. You've yeah. got to be patient at borders. That's all. But if you're super nice and if you like speak a little of the language, they like that. How are you with languages? Good? Your Spanish is good? You have to speak Spanish, of course, of course. And I love the languages. So, you know, it's, it's a link also with the people. You know, if they see that you try to, to talk their language, they'll be nice with you. Did you pick up uh, Swahili? I'm very bad, you know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Kidogo. Kidogo yeah. means a little, you know. But uh, Swahili. Uh, it's an important language because in Tanzania you have like 130 ethnies, different. And in the 60s, all those people were talking different languages. So the president in 64 said, okay, that's enough. We're going to speak one language, which is the Swahili, which is the language which is the most spoken in Africa. I think it's like 50 or 60 million people. Uh, and because of that, People are nice to each other. They understand each other. And there's no war in, in, in Tanzania. There's no ethnic clash like you can find in other countries. Mm -hmm. So it's very safe because of communication. I remember uh, pole pole. Pole pole. Just slow, slow down. Slow. Going up the mountain. Pole pole. Exactly. And it's like, hey, boss, why are you so... I mean, the clients are coming. We have to hurry. You have to do this. It's like, pole, 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 pole. slow down. We're not in Europe here. We have to do it our way. <laughs> yeah. So you're stressed out, but at the end of the day, it's done. It takes a while, though, to get into that mentality because you realize that there's like Africa time, you know, that uh, that bus may show up. It may not, you know. <laughs> I know it says on the schedule that bus is coming at 1 o'clock. Eh, maybe, maybe it will, maybe it won't. And they would always ask, you know, and then you'd go up and ask, like, where's the bus? And they said, 15 minutes or 20 minutes. That was always their standard thing, 20 minutes, because they figured out 20 minutes, you'll wait. And then you'll shut up for 20 minutes. And then you'll come back after 20 minutes and they'll go, what? 20 minutes. And then they'll say 20 minutes again and 20 minutes. It just keeps going on like that. And maybe it shows up, maybe it doesn't. But they figured it out, you know, how to shut up the white guy. 20 minutes. And they're like, okay, the white guy will accept 20 minutes. But yeah, that's the mentality, yeah. you know, I mean, they can die from one day to the other, you know, their lifespan is not as large as ours. I mean, I think in Tanzania, it's like 49 years old. Wow. Really? Still? Uh, yes. So uh, they can die from the next day. So why hurry? As they don't think about the future that much, about being old, about having a pension like we do. You know, we work all our life to get the, this pension and then you're 60 or something and you die I mean you gotta go for it right now I mean don't wait until too late just do it now so that's what I learned a lot about those Africans just 
do your thing, but don't rush. I mean, the life goes so damn fast. Well, do you, did you get this in Africa like I did? Or we're about the same age. That uh, you don't, Do you have children? You don't have children. Not that I know of. Yeah, see? <laughs> but to people in Africa, to be our age and not be married or not have children is crazy. You know, they, it's almost like you don't have children. They look at you like, well, what? You know, it's almost suspicious. Sometimes I would lie. I would show photos of my niece and nephew and say, yeah, these are my kids. <laughs> so, so just to stop the conversation. You know, because they don't want it, you know, think of you as, you know, hmm, weird. Yeah, but, uh, you know, everybody has its own goal in life. <laughs> yeah. You know, some it's a family and it's, it's great, it's nice, and some it's other things. So you got to respect everybody's choice about the way Oh, I respect it. The I just wanted them to respect my choice. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know? they would look at me, I would get so many questions about that. You don't have, you've yeah, never yeah. been married? And like, ooh, mm-hmm. that's, that's weird. Uh, yeah, and there's so many kids there. It's so many. I think half the population is children or under fifteen or something in Africa. Yeah, a lot. It's very young. Just children yeah, exactly. everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. So, do you see yourself ever going back there to work? Or yeah, I go there back and forth uh, sometimes, and I love it because um, I don't live there all the time. You know, it's like I don't live in Paris all the time. So the little time I'm there, I love it. And the same in Africa. And the same in the States, because I get the best part of it. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think it's Schopenhauer who said that it's very easy uh, to be miserable, but it's not easy to be happy. So, you know, oh, there's always something wrong. Try, I mean, life is hard, but it's so easy to be extremely miserable. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it is. It's not easy to be extremely happy. Well, I know you have to go, but before, before you go, I want to ask you, we're going to go to France now. We've been avoiding France this whole time, but no more. So when people go to France, give me some places that travelers might want to go that maybe we don't know, that are not as popular, but give me some secret cool places to visit. I'm from Brittany, which is the west part of France, um, and they're known to be travelers for centuries you know it's right there on the atlantic ocean so you should go there because uh it's still untouched um there's not that many tourists and there's not that many buildings right on the ocean so you go from one place to the other and you see those old churches in every little village you know and the ocean is uh, the coast is is beautiful because there's a law in France where you're, the coast is for everybody. So even if you have a, your house on the ocean, there's always... Um, Say a public beach or something. A public or just a, a coastline. Or like a, a coastline uh, that is open to everybody. So just take this coastline and walk for miles. Uh, and it's, it's amazing. And the French Alps also, you know, down south. You go in those valleys and you find the, the culture over there. I mean, specific, what's good about France. You have like, it's a small country, you know, and, but there's different culture in almost, uh, you just drive one hour away and it's a different countryside. Oh, yeah. I was in uh, Annecy. 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 Beautiful. Yeah. Good cheese. Oh, the good cheese. Because it's right down from, right near Switzerland, Geneva, right? 
Right. It's an hour away yeah, from an hour Geneva, away from Geneva, and an hour away from Chamonix. Yeah, um, beautiful. Which is the Mont Blanc? Of course, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the best ski place, best ski place that you like, your favorite. Um, I skied in Chacaltaya in Bolivia a long time ago. Uh, there's like this cable with the engine of a truck who pulls you up the mountain. And it's more like 5,600 meters high. I don't know how much is that in feet. That's high. And I discovered um, two years ago that the glacier disappeared. Oh. So you cannot ski there anymore. But because of that, it makes a good souvenir. Um, Now I like the powder in American ski resorts. You know, in Colorado? In Colorado or in Utah. Utah is uh, good. You know, Snowbird, Alta. Um, that's nice the powder is good but you go to France of course Uh, (laughs) biggest ski domain in the world Uh, I love it too best uh, windsurfing place oh there's so many (laughs) now I do kite surfing but uh, I go a lot to Brazil okay uh, northern Brazil yeah next to Fortaleza I discovered a place uh, in La Guajira which is on the border of Venezuela and uh, Colombia Oh, that's amazing. Always have a lot of wind. Um, in the Sahara, on the Moroccan coast, south. Oh, the Essaouira or something? There's Essaouira, and then Esawira. you go like an hour flight down. It's on 200 kilometers from Mauritania, and there you have uh, Dakhla. Beautiful. If you want to see the Sahara going into the ocean, that's the best. Wow. And you that go with cool. your kite surf, you go down the dunes. On the sand, oh, yeah. and you arrive on the water. You kite surf on the sand? Yeah, oh, on the wow. dune. Cool. Why kite surfing and not windsurfing now? Is it easier to pack? <laughs> yeah, and I'm getting old now, so <laughs> kite surfing is easier than windsurfing now. Okay. You know, physically. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I've never done either. Well, you have to try. I would love to. Well, let's go. Okay. Yeah. Well, you have to get on a plane now. Yeah. Okay. Before you go, um, I want to ask you what. Uh, what has all this travel, how has it changed you as a person? And maybe how has it changed how you look at people and life and on earth? I just found out that um, you got to choose your life. And, and like I said at the beginning, I took the risk of doing it. And I found out taking the risk brought me other nice things on the way. You know, you meet this person, you go to this country. Like I said, I went to Antarctica for windsurfing. The next thing you know is they hire me to give lectures over there. Uh, So it's far away from my everyday job with a tie that I used to have when I was younger. But at that time, I said, okay, let's go for it. Let's do it. Just go for it. Just try. Don't listen to people say, oh, it's dangerous. What about your pension? What about this? Just live your life. Otherwise, it's going to be too late, you know, and and in 20 years from now, you're going to be sorry for the things you didn't do. And I think that's Mark Twain who said that one day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And if people want to find you, what is your, uh, do you have a website or something that people... You can go, yeah, you can go on discoverysafari.com. It's discovery hyphen... uh, Underscore hyphen... Uh, Discovery Safari. Yeah. Okay. We will have links to all uh, all your sites and everything else on uh, TravelTalesPodcast.com. And uh, thanks for doing this, man. 
safe travels, my friend. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. It was really nice talking to you, too. Okay, it was nice and to meet you. It's cool when you meet other travelers because you say those places and then they know how it is, you know, <laughs> and they know where it is. And uh, sometimes you talk Antarctica to people, they don't know where it is. So you got to be curious about all those places in the world because there's so much to see. Absolutely. Well, thank you, man. Thanks. All right, Patrick. Have a safe flight. And yeah. I'll see you uh, kite surfing one day. I hope so. Just come anytime. We'll go <laughs> kite surfing. So. Perfect. Boom.